Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Hello, and welcome back to The Lift. We took a little break after the holidays, and we're back now. I did want to take a minute to say thank you to everyone who answered our plea for support on Patreon last episode. Since the last episode, our support on Patreon has doubled, and we're now one-third of the way towards our goal of $550 a month, which is the level where we can start to reward the writers, the artists, and the composers who make the show possible. Without them, there would be no lift. So we really do appreciate your support. It helps ensure that we can continue to make these episodes for you. If you haven't supported the show and you'd like to, you can do that for as little as $2 a month. Everyone who supports the show gets not only the reward of knowing that the show is continuing and that they're a part of making that happen, but we do have rewards that we send out to everybody. The higher reward levels do have some really cool rewards, like custom artwork from the show and personal greetings from Victoria. But we appreciate all support, including your reviews and iTunes. We're celebrating Women in Horror Month here at The Lift. Today's episode is written by Aaron Vleck. And of course, for us, every month is Women in Horror Month because we have the talented Amber Collins voicing Victoria Bigglesworth-Hayes in every episode. The co-creator and co-producer of the show, Cynthia Lohman, acts as the editor for the show. She does a lot of the narration. You're going to be hearing some more of those episodes with her narrating coming up in the coming months. And of course, several of the artists that you're familiar with who do the artwork for the show are ladies. So without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Erin, let her say hello, and we'll go for a ride. Hi, this is Erin Vleck. I'm the writer for today's episode of The Lift, The Ice That Giveth, The Ice That Taketh Away. If you enjoyed the story, you can find more of my work at erinvleck.wordpress.com. Find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. Thank you and enjoy the show. The ticket to my literary fame had sold over two million copies. That accursed fucking book. I wanted nothing more than to fling it into that nightmare abyss that bore it and never hear or speak of it again. This was how it all went down. I have lost so much. My name is Victoria. I am bound to this place, charged with guiding those who must choose. Don't be afraid. I can never again be the little girl I was. Will you accept your fate? I have my music box and a library lost. But I sometimes feel very alone. Won't you join me? It's time for your ride on the lift. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Me, Robbie, Dennis, and the twins, Andy and Trevor, 
had been a frat pack of scrappy punks who built things that were enjoying the likes of Google, Apple, and Microsoft nosing around, wanting to know what else we were working on, and if we'd ever considered working on this or that. We sold our first baby company for $3 billion when we were just 26 years old. That's how we rolled. We also played extreme sports to let off steam. We'd gone on some pretty hairy climbs and wanted to do something rad to have a last hurrah before getting to work on our next big thing. Robbie came up with the K2 caper. Even though it was by far the most ambitious climb we'd ever considered, it didn't take much chatter before we were locked and ready to rock on our way to the mountain. We'd taken off one fine spring morning for Pakistan, and 21 hours later, landed at Islamabad airport. Everything after that happened fast. Dennis had arranged for the porters and ground support, and everything went off without a hitch. In remarkably short order, we arrived in the village of Askol, that last human habitation before the eight-day trek to base camp. Then we were on the mountain. Everything was fine until we reached Baltoro Glacier. And then it all went sideways. That's what the book's about. That's the story everybody wants to hear. First things first. The twins bad boys and their overinflated imaginations that they were, immediately whooshed out. They started whining once they came to grips with the fact that there would be no five-star hotel with a spa and a rack of martinis waiting at the end of each day. So they basically ditched us. They stole half our porters, took their toys, and went home. Fine. Robbie and Dennis and I continued on, traveling lean and clean, just the way we like it. The next thing that happened was the porters started acting up. They didn't like the ice. They said it wasn't right, didn't feel right under their feet or something, didn't look right, didn't frigging smell right. Robbie said it was just some superstitious crap, but they refused to go on and begged us to come back to base camp with them. You could tell they were really spooked, but I wasn't sure if it was that or some local hoo-ha or there really was something wrong with the ice, something like... Maybe, oh, I don't know, global frigging warming. But I had invested too much at this point to turn tail and run. Besides, I wasn't going to give the damn twins the satisfaction of thinking we'd wussed out too. So we put it to a vote. Robbie wanted no part of slagging back down the mountain in defeat and said if we left him, he was making it to our destination on his own. That was crazy talk, but I knew he'd probably try it. So, we agreed to go on without the porters. They left us what gear and food they could spare, then, all too quickly, they disappeared. And we were left facing the howling gale and the rapidly approaching sunset on the glacier. We made camp, tried to bluster our way back to some kind of enthusiasm, and then turned in. The next morning, Robbie was already up and rationing out breakfast when Dennis and I crawled out of our tents. We ate in silence, not the typical state of affairs for any of us, and then we were on our way. That morning, I felt it, or maybe it was my imagination, I don't know, but the ice didn't feel like normal ice to me either. It was somehow softer than I thought it should be for glacier ice that's been there since before God. But then I'd never walked on glacier ice before. 
Still, I'd been on every kind of ice imaginable in the States, and this did not feel like any of it. It felt, I don't know, foamy. Was it melting? It didn't feel like any slush I'd ever walked on, but this was a long way from my experience, and who knew? Then we started seeing the rivers. Several of them rushed past like gnarly-ass white rapids in the canyon. They weren't real rivers, of course. They were melts that ate through the ice, and the roaring echoed through the valley so bad I was afraid it would start an avalanche. We continued for two days like that, not saying much to each other when we stopped or even when we camped. By the third day, the wind was so severe I couldn't see Dennis and Robbie's faces when we stopped to eat. They just kept their heads down, the fur on their parkas obscuring their faces as they sat and stared at the ground or mumbled to each other. I was getting pissed. This wasn't my goddamn fault. I hadn't insisted we continue alone, and I didn't dig getting attitude from these guys. The ice was becoming more pliant. The wind was about to rupture my eardrums, and I was getting the whim-whams from these two. I hadn't seen their faces for days, and I didn't like it. I just knew that one of these damn melts was going to open up beneath our feet and swallow us whole. We took turns taking the lead so the two in back could get a little bit of a breather by not focusing so hard on where we were headed. On day number three, I had the lead. Every little bit, I'd glance back and make sure I could see the other two. Not long before we would have to make camp for the night, I heard a horrified scream. I turned around and saw that one of them had disappeared and the other was running away. I raced back and Robbie grabbed me and pointed hysterically at something. Visibility was almost zero, but I could just see a dark gash ripping across the ice about 20 feet from where we stood. Dennis had fallen into a crevasse. We scrambled over the ice, dumping our gear and pulling on the guide rope that separated Dennis from the invisible bottom of a monster melt. The horrid torrent ripping through the ice far below with the fury of a thousand turbines. Robbie dropped to his knees and tried desperately to drag Dennis out of the black maw of the dark melt. He was gesturing wildly at me and yanking on the rope around my waist but I couldn't hear anything over the deafening roar that seemed to be coming from every direction, including inside my head. I turned around in a blind panic. I could hear Robbie screaming my name, calling for help. He wasn't having any luck hauling Dennis up and seemed to be slipping closer to the edge himself. My mind went numb. All I could think to do was unhook the guide rope from my harness and run. So, I ran like a madman, knowing I was just barreling faster into the arms of my own death. Eventually, I collapsed, slept, woke up, and ran some more, slept, ran, and collapsed. The next time I woke up, I was in a hospital in Islamabad. Six months later, I was the author of a best-selling autobiography published by someone who convinced me people wanted to read about a tragic hero, not a fucking coward who'd left his buddies to die on the ice with nothing but terror and betrayal to keep them company in their final hours. 
The report said when they found me, I'd only been about five feet from the lip of the crevasse. Robbie's body was dangling just over the edge and there was no sign of Dennis. I was still tied to them. That was the account the rescue team had given in their official report. But I knew. I had abandoned my friends. But how was that report possible? I remembered leaving them, remembered running for two, maybe three days and sleeping up mountain on the ice. Six months later, I just wanted to be rid of that book, be done with the drunken stupor that allowed me to pass out and switch nightmares each night. I was done. Tonight, when I left the last fucking talk I'd ever give on this subject, I stopped by an acquaintance who dabbled in freelance pharmaceuticals. From him, I purchased a little brown vial of yellow tablets he assured me would clear my conscience forever. My luck was holding out in typical form. When I left the guy's pad located appropriately in the seediest part of town, my tires had been slashed. Long past still having any fucks to give, I figured the present location was as good as any. So I walked about half a block and came to an abandoned building. Surely I could find a quiet corner here to take care of business without having to deal with the local squatter community. If they wanted to roll my corpse after I'd cleared out, fine. And if they wanted to piss on my mortal remains, by all means. In the lobby was a bank of elevators. Only number three still had its door intact, with the other two jimmied off their tracks and hanging at an angle. I was looking around for the stairs when I heard the sound of a bell, like an elevator door had opened, and this weird music started playing. What the fuck gives? I hadn't taken any drugs yet, so what was going on here? I figured maybe the squatters had rigged up some electricity and somebody was playing music, but it sounded like, I don't know, like old-fashioned from a movie or something. Whatever. As long as I didn't see anybody and I found a place where I could finish myself off, that's all I asked. Then I got an idea. I thought I'd go to the roof and do it up there under the stars. A small yellow bulb dangled from the wire in the ceiling of elevator number three, so I could see the control panel. I got in and hit penthouse, but nothing happened. I hit the 10th floor button and figured I'd walk up. Nothing. Ninth floor, the same. The thing seemed to be dead. Before the door could fully close, a tiny hand grabbed the door, and the person that slipped into the elevator was from a whole other time and place. It was a little girl, maybe nine, with blonde pigtails wearing what looked like a Victorian nightgown. Like she was dressed up for the Ren Fair or one of those things. But in a dump like this... Hey, I said, kind of irritated to see anybody on my secret mission. I sure as hell didn't want a kid knowing what I was up to. None of those buttons work. Besides, you can't get anywhere from where you are, except from the eighth floor. She said with a smile that made me wonder what the hell she was talking about. But that's where I'm going so I can take you. She slipped her hand into mine and squeezed it with the strength of a powerful man. And I almost yelled with shock. You're telling me that the 8th floor is the only one that's open? That's right. But you don't want to go anywhere else anyway. 
Come on, I'll take you there, she said, pushing the eight button on the elevator panel. The door closed immediately and we moved. The sound of the cables creaking overhead, probably rusted and ready to snap. Look, why don't you run along? I need some time to myself. You should probably get home. This place isn't safe. What are you doing here anyway? We rocked to a jerky halt. The car seemed to tremble for a second before everything went silent and the bulb flickered out. Don't be scared, Mike, the girl said, ignoring my questions. It does this all the time. It means we have to wait for it to decide. Mike, how do you know my name's Mike? And we're waiting for who to decide what? Well, you look like a Mike. And I'm never wrong when I guess things. Am I wrong, Mike? No. Lucky guess is all. I mean, come on. But who are we waiting for, and what are they going to decide? To keep us trapped in here all night? Things were getting weird fast. Like some Alice in Wonderland gag my buddies threw back at Kappa Sigma when they were drunk and looking to play some shit on a noob. Except that two of those bros were dead because of me, and the other two thought I was some kind of fucking hero. These days, I couldn't even look the twins in the eye. You'll see, she said, and crossed her arms over her chest. Don't you want to know who I am? She said, and that strange old music started in again. Yeah, sure, kid. Of course, sorry. I just got a lot of things on my mind is all. I muttered, wondering how much more off the rails this thing could go. Maybe I should just pop the pills and die right here. The kid would just think I'd fallen asleep or something. She'd be on her way, and none the wiser. My name is Victoria, Mike, and I devise very, very strongly against doing any such thing. Her voice sounded like she was mad, and she glared at me. Do what? Any such what thing? I asked, punching the eight again and again. You know what? I won't have you hurting anyone in my house. Your house? You mean you live here? I'm sorry, kid. Jeez. Taking her for some homeless kid living rough on her own. Look, I got a few bucks here. Take it. I won't need it. She smiled, took the money and stuck it in her pocket without looking at it. Then she patted me on the arm. Come on, Mike. It's time to go. She said softly, like she felt sorry for me. Then I felt the elevator lurch and we were on our way again. Wait a minute. You said I was going to hurt somebody. I'm not going to hurt anybody. I was just... I was just... How... You mean... Somehow you knew what I was thinking? I almost whispered in disbelief. Yes, Mike. It's not very nice. Even if you were thinking of yourself. It's not nice to hurt innocent people. She said, waving her finger at me and smiling. Oh, kid, Victoria, you got me all wrong. I'm not an innocent man. Anything but. Well, that will be decided. Here's your floor, and good luck. I'll see you later. The elevator door opened on the eighth floor, and I stepped out and turned around to make sure the kid was coming with me. Strangely, I didn't really want to be alone anymore. But she was gone. I figured it was just more crazy visions or something, but then I heard that music again. 
and it made me feel comfortable somehow. The eighth floor was a mess of discarded furniture and other junk, so I dug around and I found a place and sat down on an old blanket that wasn't too dirty, as if that mattered for what I had in mind. I took out the pills and laid the brown bottle next to my hand right on the blanket. Then I shut my eyes to get my head on straight for the deed at hand. I must have dozed off for a couple of minutes. I was exhausted. The temperature had dropped, and the wind had come up. Probably what woke me. I opened my eyes and gasped. All I could see was white, and the mother of all winds blowing around me. It was snowing. But what the fuck? How could it be? Then I saw what was around me. I had to be dreaming because I was back on K2. And there, not 20 feet away, was the yapping maw of all crevasses, and two tiny figures struggled on the ice at the gaping lip of the thing. This had to be nothing but a nightmare of a guilty conscience, like the kind I had every night. I got up and walked towards the crouched figures when I heard that music again, louder than before. Crazy as it sounds, it was encouraging me to go over the chasm. Maybe I should just go over and throw myself in. I walked to the figures. The first was Robbie, and the other one was me. They were looking over the lip of the chasm and trying desperately to drag Dennis back up. The other me stood up and looked around. Here it comes, I thought. This was where I pull off that guide rope and take off, leaving my friends to die. I looked away and sobbed. Something nudged me, and I opened my eyes. There was Victoria. No coat or hat, and none the worse for it. Uh, such is the stuff of dreams. Under her arm she held the most beautiful antique music box I had ever seen. The music was coming from inside. She took my hand and dragged me closer to where Robbie and I stood next to the rim. Look, Mike. You have to look, she said, and I heard her plain as day despite the screaming wind. I heard that music, too, and somehow it was okay to look. I knew the truth better than anyone. I was there. I knew I had run off and left them. I remember running for three days and even sleeping each night. No one needed to remind me of my foul secret. But I wasn't going to refuse to look at it either. One last time before I submitted myself to whatever justice I had coming. So I took a good long look at the big hero. At myself. Michael B. Chastain that other me was still frantically looking around and then he I scrambled over the ice towards a dark lump in the snow it was my pack and I he was rummaging around inside looking 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 then pulling out the ice climbers what the bloody hell oh man here comes some really demented denial wish fulfillment shit I did not deserve even this delusion Robbie lost his grip and slid over the edge. And I saw me 
the fantasy me race to the edge of the ice and clamber over, using the ice climbers to work my way down. I turned away and let out a roar of agony. Don't look away, Mike, Victoria said, and I could no more refuse her orders than I could make this all go away and change the past. You have to see. You have to see the truth. I know the truth, I screamed over the roaring wind. No, no you don't. And it's my job to make sure that you do. Now go, look! See what happened, Mike. See what really happened. Victoria shoved me toward the abyss, and I wiped the hot tears from my eyes. The other me disappeared over the lip, down the wall of the fissure. I was out of sight for several minutes. Then I heard a scream. It was my voice. It was just like the scream I had cut loose a couple of minutes ago. A few minutes after that, I watched the other me climb up out of the chasm and collapse in a heaving pile beside the rim. We stood there for what seemed like days. Then I saw a stream of little black dots moving slowly toward us. It was a team of climbers. A rescue party. I stared silently, numb with disbelief as they loaded me onto a stretcher. I stood there, grasping Victoria's little hand in mine like it was the only thing standing between me and eternal damnation. Then the rescue party moved off and grew smaller and smaller and then disappeared. You mean... Yes, Mike. This is what really happened. Not what you remember from your 45 minutes of laying there before the rescue party found you. You didn't really run away. You just thought you did in your delirium. And it hadn't been three days. It was just 45 minutes. I sobbed and laughed at the same time. You know what it's like. I wiped my eyes and laughed some more. Then I cried. I couldn't let you hurt that innocent man, Mike. That man had risked his life to help his friends and almost died trying. He doesn't deserve that. You don't deserve that. But now you have a choice. You're going to get back on the elevator. I will give your medicine back. And you can either take it like the man you think you are, or not. Or be like the man you really are. But it's not up to me. You get to choose Mike. Isn't that fun? We walked back to the elevator and the door opened. I turned and looked at her, not even sure what to say. She gave me this weird look. Then she put her hand on my chest and shoved me into the elevator. But instead of hitting the floor, I was falling, falling and falling down a cavern of blue-white ice, and I just kept on falling for what seemed like forever. Somewhere, I stopped being scared. I stopped screaming. And I just flew, like I was nothing but a speck of insignificant dust. I was grateful for everything that had ever happened in the world or would ever happen again. And the cherry on the top of that Sunday was a little girl named Victoria. Most of all, of course, I was grateful I hadn't really abandoned Robbie and Dennis to their fate without trying to help them. After about a forever of falling, 
I hit the floor of the elevator and the door slid open. I jumped up and I was about to get the hell out of there when I heard Victoria's music box. Wait, Mike. Don't you want your little brown bottle? I was about to yell no, but all I heard was her laughter and her music fading off in the distance somewhere far, far away. big thank you to all of you for listening to the show to all of you who take the time to rate and review the show in itunes and stitcher and every place else and to all of our patreon supporters without your generous contributions it would be nearly impossible to put this show together full show notes with credits links and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com we make other podcasts you might enjoy check out the wickedlibrary.com and also ninthstory.com for links to other shows. If you're on social media, you can check us out on Facebook and also on Twitter. And if you'd like to make sure you don't miss future episodes of the show, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, lots of places.
They quite upset a plan, and he'll cry this life's a burden hard to bear. Though today may be a day of smiles, tomorrow still in doubt. What brings me joy may bring you care and woe. We're born to die, but don't know why or what it's all about. The more we try to learn, the less we know. Life's a very funny proposition, you can bet. And no one's ever solved the problem properly as yet. Young for a day, and then old and gray. Like the rose that buds and blooms and fades and falls away. Losing health in search of wealth as through this dream we tour. Everything's a guess and nothing's absolutely sure. Battle's exciting, fate we're fighting until the curtains fall. Life's a very funny proposition after